scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. If you've been with us for the past two months, I don't know, uh, we've been working our way through Galatians little by little, and uh, we've made it to Galatians 3.10 this morning. Before we read that together, uh, please pray with me. Our Father, we, we come before you uh, as uh, we've read about and talked about and prayed about already this morning. We come before you because uh, you are the one who saves your people. Uh, it's, it's your strength. It's your power. It's your wisdom. Uh, it's your goodness. And Father, we come to look to you. We come to hear from you. We come to receive from you. We come to... Uh, receive from your word by your spirit. and So we pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on us this morning, pour out your spirit on me, help my words to be true to your word. We pray that uh, your word would be clear, your message would be clear. We pray that you would be with us as we hear, that we would receive the truth, that we would believe the truth, that we would uh, take it to heart, that we would rest in it, rejoice in it, Father, we pray that you would be at work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning as we hear your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, the self-help self industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, between books and podcasts and DVDs and programs and seminars and TED Talks and all the rest. And, and what this shows, if nothing else, is that people on some level want to change. Whether financially or physically or relationally or emotionally, we are deeply dissatisfied and our tendency is to turn to the experts. And I don't want to poo-poo this. Uh, if you are physically unhealthy and you read a book by a medical doctor right, on exercise and diet and life routines conducive to physical health, well, that's, that's a great idea. Um, if you're financially troubled and you're have, you have credit card debt piled high and you overdraw your account each month, well, I guess it's only wise to, to read a little bit on how to deal with your finances well. And what you do is you, you, know, you, you read certain principles, you read certain guidelines, certain rules, uh, you know, don't eat junk food or cut your credit card in half or whatever, and uh, you put those rules into effect and, and your life gets better. Again, that's, that's not wrong, right? In fact, uh, it makes perfect sense to do some of those kinds of things. 
The problem is not in the system, of course. Uh, the problem is more often than not in us. Uh, we, we may find a great diet that would work, but we fail to keep up the routine. Uh, I, I saw a chiropractor last fall uh, for some back pain, and he gave me some exercises that would help, and they did until I stopped doing them. Even laying that aside for the moment, uh, the real problem comes when we apply this way of thinking to our spiritual struggles. And there are really two problems here. The first is that uh, principles and rules and guidelines cannot change your heart. You know, if I follow a certain diet, assuming that there are no medical issues, I can probably lose the weight I want to lose. Spiritual growth is not quite so simple. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, physical change is not quite so simple either. Okay, granted, but spiritual growth is not even as simple as that. I'm not saying that spiritual growth doesn't involve discipline. Of course, it, it certainly does, actually. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And so I'm not suggesting that uh, spiritual growth doesn't involve discipline on our part, uh, but I, I would say that the power for change, right, heart-level change, does not come from rules or guidelines that we might set down. It doesn't come from our implementing those rules or guidelines. Spiritual power for spiritual change comes from somewhere else altogether. The second problem with sort of applying a self-help formula to the Christian life is we, we begin to think that if, if we follow this or that program, if we keep these or those rules, then that, that makes me a good person and, and makes me acceptable before God. You know, if I work hard and I get my finances under control or I get my body in shape or I start the business I've always wanted to start, in the end, right, who do I thank? Well, sure, I, I may thank my family and friends if they help me along the way. You know, that's what we say. Uh, but really, in the end, I end up patting myself on the back. You know, I'm the one who read the book, after all. I'm the one who changed my routine. I'm the one who altered my spending habits, my eating habits, my study habits, whatever. I may throw a shout-out to God, right? But oftentimes, it's only because I think that God helps those who help themselves, after all. And, and I helped myself, and so uh, God must be in there somehow. Well, when this kind of, of self-help style thinking seeps into the Christian life, it ends with me just kind of muscling up, uh, making myself the person I want to be, and then patting myself on the back when I get there, saying, of course God loves me, right? I mean, look at how great of a Christian I am. Look at, look at all that I've done. Look at where I've come. Now, I'm all for encouragement, by the way. I'm even all for patting people on the back for a job well done. Uh, people do have some amazing God-given talents and abilities, and we should encourage them in those things. Uh, but as soon as we tie God's love to a job well done, we've fallen into what theologians call legalism, right? a, a works-based righteousness. My, my view of God's assessment of me has become tied to my behavior, my performance, and whether I think God grades on a curve or whether it's, it's a pass-fail, either way, I am at that point denying the Christian gospel. Self-help help programs, they, they can't change your heart. Uh, they can't make you a good 
person, at least not in a way that, that I can boast before God or earn his acceptance. Now, you may be wondering what all this has to do with Galatians chapter 3. Uh, I think there's an, al- an analogy uh, between self-help material and, and a wrong application of that to our spiritual lives and the way the law works and the way we sometimes misuse it. The law is, is the main topic of our text this morning, and uh, especially the law in, in as much as it contrasts with faith. And so you can see in your bulletin, on the back of your bulletin, uh, there should be an outline. There are two main points to the outline, two parts to our text, life under the law and the life of faith. First, we're going to talk about life under the law. And uh, you can see there are three things we're going to see about the law. Uh, One is how the law works. One is what the law does. And then finally, how the law is misused. First, how the law works. You know, we, we live in, in a day, I think, that is particularly anti-rules. Uh, we, we don't like rules. We don't like people telling us what to do, how to live. And uh, it's easy uh, for New Testament Christians to begin to think about the Old Testament law in purely negative terms. And uh, Paul has strong things to say about the purpose of the law, doesn't he? Paul in the New Testament says things like, the law gives knowledge of sin. Uh, The law increases sin. The law arouses sinful desires. The letter of the law, Paul says elsewhere, kills. And so it's no wonder that we might think of the law purely in negative terms. It gives knowledge of sin, it increases sin, it arouses desire, and it kills. But that's not really fair because Paul actually also says some positive things about the law. He says the law is holy and righteous and good if one uses it lawfully, he adds. In fact, James says the one who does the law will be blessed in his doing. And the Old Testament, if you turn to the Old Testament and see what the Old Testament has to say about the law, it shares this high positive view of God's law. Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm and also the longest chapter in the Bible, is a 176-verse love poem to God's law. A love poem to God's law. Every verse uh, includes a reference to God's word or God's law or God's revelation or God's statutes. It says things like, I delight in your statutes. Your statutes have been my song. Your law is my delight. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your testimonies are the joy of my heart. The psalm writer goes on to say things like God's law gives life and wisdom and understanding and light. So the question is, how how is the law a blessing? How was it a blessing to Israel that the psalmist would praise it so much? How is it, as James says, a blessing to God's people today? And Paul tells us in the middle of our text this morning, believe it or not, in verse 12. Verse 12, Paul says... See if I can find it. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The one who does them shall live by them. Uh, Quoting uh, Leviticus here, he says, The one who does them shall live by them. Here's the way the law works. If you follow the rules, you experience the benefits of obedience. 
It's, it's that simple, right? I mean, if you, if you follow the rules, you experience the benefits of following the rules. Uh, the Proverbs bring this out. They talk about a sowing and reaping principle, right? If you sow seed in springtime, you will reap the fruit of your labor at harvest time. So doing the law, right, obedience to God's commands brings blessing. This is actually true whether you're a Christian or not. Think about this, right? Uh, if you honor your father and your mother, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, uh, in general, the result will be a family that, that flourishes, right? I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll do better with your parents if you honor them. doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, not a Christian. You, you obey that law, you'll, you'll do better, right? Um, if you don't go around committing adultery or murdering people, in general, that will mean you will have a happier life. I can pretty much guarantee it. Even the Sabbath, right? The, even the Sabbath. Uh, one of the most controversial of the Ten Commandments for Christians, even the Sabbath, people today right, are, talk a lot about margin and the need for work-life balance. Well, guess what, right? The, the self-help gurus, they didn't invent that. Um, you, if you Google the phrase secular Sabbath, right, you will find articles on, on the Atlantic, in, in the Atlantic, on NPR, and on TED.com, right? Remembering the Sabbath, the secular experts tell us, is actually good for you. Go figure. And so the law, when obeyed, uh, it, it will actually bring blessing. Well, this brings us to our next point, what the law does. Okay? How, how does the law work? Well, if you, 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 you obey it, you keep it, and it, and it brings blessing. Okay, well, what, what does the law do? Paul doesn't actually talk about the blessings of the law here, does he? Look at verse 10. Paul says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Again, Paul is quoting the Old Testament, and uh, he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy this time, and Paul tells us, whoever does not keep the law is cursed. Okay, so which is it, right? Uh, does the law bring curse or blessing? And the answer, of course, is both. The law brings blessing when it is kept, but it brings a curse when it is disobeyed. Again, this, this isn't per se religious. Uh, this is just a fact of life. Breaking God's law against adultery or stealing or dishonoring your parents will bring trouble into your life in general. And, and of course, though, this... Uh, statement in Deuteronomy, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It, it is religious, right? It's set in a religious context. God had brought his people out of Egypt. He had saved them. And in the passage Paul quotes, God is calling them to live before him in a way that will bring blessing and not curse, good and not trouble. Okay, so what is Paul arguing against here in Galatians? He's not arguing against obeying God. He's not even arguing that obedience to God's moral law uh, will, will not bring blessing of some kind. It, it will. He's not arguing against a, a, a certain understanding of the sowing and reaping principle in the spiritual life, right? Just look at Galatians 6, 8. We'll get there later. Nor is Paul arguing that, that uh, you shouldn't voluntarily keep the Mosaic law, right? The Christian Jewish people... Uh, were free to obey the Mosaic law. They were free to do that if they so chose. So Paul's not arguing against any of those things. What is he arguing against? 
Well, that brings us to the next point, which is how the law is misused. How the law is misused. Paul says in verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. What does it mean to rely on the works of the law? Well, what has Paul been talking about up to this point in Galatians? Uh, he, he's been talking about the, the means by which we are justified or declared right with our Father. How, how does that happen? He said back in chapter 2, verse 16, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. God accepts us. God receives us. God gives us his approval. Paul has been saying again and again, not because we keep the Mosaic law, but because of the obedience of Jesus, which is counted as ours through faith. Jesus received the Father's approval in his resurrection. We find the Father's approval when we are united to Jesus through faith. And so when Paul says, all who rely on the works of the law, he means those who look to their obedience to the Mosaic law, or any law, for that matter, in order to obtain justification, in order to win the Father's approval. Those who think that my performance can prove my self-worth before God, or, or can make myself a good person in God's eyes. If I just do these things, if I keep these laws, then I'll be good in God's sight. Paul says, those who look to the law for approval are under a curse. And remember how the law works, right? It brings blessing to those who keep it, but it brings a curse to those who fail. When you bring that principle into your relationship to God, it brings curse. Why? Well, Paul's implied proposition here is that we all fail to keep the whole law. We may keep it at points, of course. Paul's not accusing anyone of breaking the whole law in every way all at once. It's not what he's saying. But as James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Uh, think of it like this, right? If, if, if the whole law is God's law, how many laws do you need to break in order to rebel against God? Well, just one, right? Um, one act of disobedience is disobedience. It's kind of like the game Red Rover. I don't think you're allowed to play that on the playground anymore. Do you, do you remember that game, right? It's where everybody, you have two lines, everybody stands in two different lines, you link arms or hands or whatever, and you say, Red Rover, Red Rover, let some, somebody come over. And they run over and they try to break through the line, and if they can break through the line, then, then uh, I don't even know what happens then. <laughs> it's been a long, long time since I played Red Rover. But the point is, you only have to find one weak link in that chain in order to break through, right? And once you, you know, break one link, and then you, you've won in some way, right? Well, here it's the opposite, right? Break just one law. It doesn't matter which law, right? Any, any law, breaking any of God's law is an act of disobedience. If you're looking to the law to make you right with God, but fail at any point, Scripture says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. God's law, when, when it's a guide for living it can bring blessing when it's obeyed, right? If I obey God in life, that's, that's going to be a blessing to me. But God's law, when, when it's seen as a means of, a, of attaining acceptance, it will inevitably lead to curse. Well, why? Well, because you're immediately confronted with the question, how many laws do I need to keep in order to gain God's acceptance? How good do I have to be? And the answer is, if you want acceptance through the law, 
The one who does them will live by them, right? You have to be as perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You have to keep the whole law. See, the, the law works by way of blessing those who keep it and cursing those who fail. And on one level, this is, again, just a basic sowing and reaping principle of life. When we bring this into our relationship to God, however, when we think our self-worth, our value before God depends on our performance, it means living under a curse because we all inevitably fail to perfectly live up to the moral law. And so objectively we're cursed because as Paul says later in Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, if we try to deal with God based on our performance, Paul says we are obligated to keep the whole law. So if we want to make a deal with God and say, look, I'll obey you perfectly and then you can bless me, okay, then you have to obey him perfectly, right? Subjectively, though, when we think in that way, we're under a curse because, as one pastor put it, attempting to be saved by works will lead to profound anxiety and insecurity because you can never be sure that you are living up to your standards or God's standards sufficiently, whatever they may be. Living by performance, he goes on to say, makes you oversensitive to criticism, envious and intimidated by others who outshine you, makes you nervous and timid because you're unsure of where you stand, or else swaggering and boastful because you're trying to convince yourself of where you stand. Either way, you live with a sense of curse and condemnation, he says. Think about how this works with with any law, any rule that we might use. Uh, If you think having a clean home justifies you or makes you right with God or makes you a good person, if if having a clean home gives you a sense of self-worth or of righteousness, what happens when someone stops by and your home is a complete mess, right? When you found your self-worth in the law, there's no no forgiveness. The law can't forgive you, right? You, You failed. Right? And, and you're a failure. You feel like a failure, right? The law brings curse. And you have this, you're, you're embarrassed, you're ashamed, whatever it is. What's the problem? Is it the problem that you don't have a clean home? No, right? Most of us don't have a clean home most of the time, right? We just clean it up before people come over. The problem is that we're relying on having a clean home for a sense of our, our, our sense of wholeness, our sense of standing with God, our sense of righteousness. The problem is we're thinking that our performance determines our value with God. And as a result of that way of thinking, right, we, we, we live in terror. We live in anxiety. We live in fear. Now, Paul is actually not merely saying that the law won't justify you because you fail to keep it. He is saying that. But he's actually saying more than that. He's also saying the law won't justify you, won't make you right with God, because it was never intended to. Which brings us to the second part of the sermon, the life of faith. And here, too, we'll look at three points, right? How faith works, what Jesus does, and looking to the Spirit. First, how faith works. You know, why would Paul be saying that the, the law won't justify because it's not intended to? It was never intended to justify. Well, look at verse 11. Verse 11, Paul says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You know, Paul said back in in chapter 2, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And he said in chapter 3, verse 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How does Paul know that this is a universal principle, right? That this works for everyone. How do we know that, that a person is not justified by works of the law? Uh, Paul says it's, it's evident that no one is justified before God 
by the law. No one's declared right. Well, why is that, Paul? How is that evident? How do you know that no one is right with God by their obedience or performance? Well, Paul would say because, well, Scripture tells us. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says, The righteous shall live by faith. Okay, well, what does that mean? Right? What does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? It means that the, the righteous one will live by faith, right? That, that is, that the, the way of living for the righteous is faith. What, is, what does faith mean there in Habakkuk? If you were to read through the book of Habakkuk, what is he getting at? It means waiting on God, trusting in him. Paul is saying that righteous people don't live by keeping the law, they live by faith. That's the, the way that they live, by trusting what God will do, by waiting on God's work rather than trusting in your own. And so the law is not a faith, Paul says, because the, one, because the one who does them shall live by them. That's the way the law works, by doing. Faith, on the other hand, is about trusting in the doing of another. The way of law is, is doing, the way of faith is trusting what God will do or has done. What is it that God has done? Well, that brings us to the next point, what Jesus does. And here's what we've seen so far, right? The law works by blessing those who keep it, cursing those who don't. It's the, the sowing, sowing and reaping principle that God has built into this world. The problems come when we see this as part of our relationship with God under grace. Suddenly the curse is not just worldly trouble, right, but eternal damnation. If we're thinking that I can be right with God and gain heaven by my works, if I'm trying to relate to God through the law, then I fail. The Mosaic law, though, was not meant to justify. It, it, didn't, it was not meant to bring eternal life through obedience to the law. God knew after the fall, right, that Adam, after the fall of Adam and Eve, that humanity was incapable of keeping the whole law. Rather, we're righteous by faith. Abraham was righteous by faith. Habakkuk says the righteous live by faith. And that brings us then to verse 13. Verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The first thing to notice about this verse is that we're all under a curse. Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. To redeem means to, to free by paying a ransom, right? To purchase the freedom of another person in some way. The implication is we were under the curse of the law. We were enslaved to it. And there are two ways of understanding what Paul is saying here, two possibilities. The, the first way is that Paul's us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, is just talking about Jewish people, which kind of makes sense in the context, actually. Uh, it's the Jewish people who were under the curse of the Mosaic law. It was the Jews that had to keep its commands. It was the Jews that ultimately failed. Of course, the problem with that way of understanding the word us there is, didn't Christ come to die for Gentiles as well? That's what the whole book of Galatians is about. So that doesn't really work. In fact, in verse 14, he'll say the goal of Christ's death was to bring blessing, the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles. So the second option is uh, that we are all Jew and Gentile somehow under the curse of the law. How could that be, though? Right? I mean, how could Gentiles be under a curse for breaking the Jewish law? Well, most likely, Paul recognizes that all people are under a curse, not because they broke the Mosaic law, but more fundam fundam they broke a more fundamental law which lies behind it. 
So the book of Isaiah has this, there are these two verses in the middle of Isaiah, Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6, which say, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken, have broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. See that uh, Isaiah is saying that, the, um, well, the curse of the Mosaic law is just echoing a more fundamental covenant, the everlasting covenant Isaiah talks about. See, in the beginning, God entered into a relationship with humanity, a covenant relationship. Covenant is just a, a formal, binding, intimate relationship like marriage. And that covenant in the beginning, like the later Mosaic covenant, also involved curses for disobedience. This covenant did deal with eternal matters, right? Eternal life and eternal death was at stake when God said to Adam and Eve, right, don't eat from this tree and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Here was a covenant where eternal matters did depend on human obedience. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The problem, of course, was that human beings faltered, as you know. Rather than pursuing God, we sought blessing outside of God. We sought blessing in the flesh and what we'd, we could accomplish in our own strength. And the result was a curse. God said to Adam, in the day you disobey, you will surely die. And so death entered into the world. And so Isaiah can say then about all of humanity, earth lies defiled under, under its inhabitants, for they transgressed the laws, violated the statutes. They have broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. You see, human sin brought a curse on the whole earth. That is the reality in which we live. Even when we do well, we often experience trouble. Why? Because the whole earth lies under a curse, Isaiah says. And inevitably, all people die, proving the curse of death has come upon humanity. And so Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ has freed us, right? That he has freed those who believe, if we're following his argument, those who believe, Christ has freed us from the curse. God's judgment on humanity has been removed. How? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus took the curse upon himself. How do we know Jesus became a curse? We might ask Paul. Again, Paul quotes Deuteronomy. He says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That verse originally refers to the practice of hanging an executed criminal on a tree as a way of uh, deterring other people from committing the same crime. It was a way of shaming those who were executed and showing that they were under God's curse. It didn't refer to crucifixion originally because uh, ancient Israelites didn't practice crucifixion. But nevertheless, Jesus did literally hang on a tree. And Paul equates the shame of that Old Testament hanging with the shame of Jesus hanging on the cross. And he takes that as a clear sign that he was cursed by the Father. Jesus became accursed, right, that we might be blessed. Fundamentally, our relationship to God is, is, is based on obedience, but human beings failed and received a curse instead of God's blessing. Well, your relationship to God no longer has to depend on whether you are a good person or not. God's blessing no longer is reserved for good people because Jesus took on the curse that we might be right with the Father, that by faith in him we might receive his blessing. Which brings us to the last point. Looking to the Spirit. Verse 14 says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse. Uh, Jesus redeemed us from the curse so that, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, 
the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus, the seed of Abraham, uh, dealt with the curse of the law that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, just as God promised in the beginning. Uh, Jesus received God's ultimate curse of rejection and death that we might receive God's ultimate blessing, life in the spirit by faith. Now, we might wonder how the, the promise of the Spirit, right, is the blessing of Abraham. I mean, if you search the book of Genesis, you will search in vain to find any reference to the Spirit hidden in God's promises to Abraham. God promises a land, he promises a seed or children, a nation, and he promises blessing. Uh, but whenever Paul talks about these promises, uh, they're always much bigger than you might expect. And so uh, in Romans 4.13, Paul says God's promise, God promised Abraham to be the heir, not just of a land in the Middle East, but of the whole world. Right? Suddenly the promise uh, has gotten much bigger. Uh, in Galatians 3.16, Paul says God promised, God's promise to Abraham of a seed was the promise of the Messiah, the Christ. And so it makes perfect sense that the way Paul sees this, that God's promise to, the blessing of, to bless Abraham so that he would be a blessing is nothing short of the promise of the personal presence of the Spirit. That's God's blessing, his spirit, his presence with us. But what's really so interesting about this is that Paul has mentioned the spirit back in verse 5, uh, in verse 2. And what this shows is that the spirit is actually more integral to Paul's argument than we might think so at first glance. For Paul, the, the law works by doing, by what we can accomplish in our own strength, but the spirit works when we believe. To walk in the Spirit, we'll see later in Galatians, is to walk in faith. If you want to know the power of the Spirit in your life, how does that happen? Not by the works of the law, Paul says. The blessing of Abraham, the promised Spirit, works in us through faith, Paul teaches. Which brings us full circle, right? There, there are two dangers of applying a self-help formula to the Christian life. The first is this tendency to boast in our spiritual accomplishments. Look at what I did I followed the rules and now I'm a good person, or to despair, on the other hand, of our spiritual failures. But God's assessment of us is found in Christ, not in our accomplishments or in our failure. By nature, we're all under a curse because we have failed to keep God's law, but Christ has become a curse for us that we might receive the Father's blessing. The second tendency, though, is to think that if I just find the right spiritual principles, I can fix my life. When we apply the sowing and reaping principle, we assume we can fix our lives if only we find the right rule, the right law, the right program. Now, there is a right way of understanding the sowing and reaping principle in the Christian life, but it has nothing to do with relying on principles. It has to do with relying on the Spirit. Galatians 6.8, Paul will say, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You see, there's no law, there's no rule, there's no principle that you can follow in your flesh that can change your heart, that will enable you to please God in your flesh. You must cast yourself upon the Spirit. Does that take effort and discipline? Well, in a sense, it does, but not self-reliance. Rather, we have to learn to humble ourselves. Right? We have to learn to proactively depend upon the Holy Spirit. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, so our acceptance, our self-worth, our identity is found in Him. And we are now received, we have now received the Spirit by faith. 
We can walk in faith, walk in that proactive dependence because the Spirit is at work in you to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we need your Spirit to be at work in us so that we can honor you, that we can live for you, we can serve you with our whole lives. Help us not, Father, to depend on ourselves in any way. Help us not to depend on, um, on our ability, on our willpower. Help us not to depend on uh, our excitement or our enthusiasm. Help us not to depend on our insight. Help us to depend on your grace. Help us to depend on your spirit. Help us to cry out to him for mercy and help. Help us, Father, to live in light of the cross, first and foremost, resting in the work of Jesus for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.